Hi, my name is David and uh, this is our, our first episode of our the Crumpy Old uh, Coders podcast <laughs> where we can explore a little bit later or uh, how we uh, came up with this name but uh, I'm really happy to have with me today Thomas. Uh, Thomas, uh, would you like to introduce yourself a bit? Yes, hello, yeah, glad to be here. Um, I am a freelance full-stack engineer and architect. I've worked for big companies, uh, Symantec, Action, and McLaren. That was great fun. Uh, just to name a few, I've been writing software for many years, hence the grumpy old coder bit. I've been writing software since 2004, and I've moved on to web stuff in 2011. And I'm I'm always focused on the Microsoft stack, so ASP, MVC, and Angular on the front end. Um, I enjoy being hands-on. I plan to always stay hands-on, no matter what happens. I, I don't plan to go into management anytime soon. But I'm looking to focus more on architecture rather than the coding itself, because it's more enjoyable architecture, mentoring, consulting, and that sort of thing. I'm a certified Azure architect, and I am a cat person. You can find me on Twitter, GitHub, LinkedIn by searching for my handle, TK Glazer. Thank you. Okay, okay, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, because this is the first episode, let me explain a little bit also who I am. Uh, my name is David, or also known as NoSQL Geek sometimes. Right? <laughs> I will explain this. And uh, um, I worked for in several roles in, in the past, uh, including as a software engineer, software architect, consultant, solutions architect, uh, and uh, lately I'm doing a lot of uh, technical enablement, um, so helping um, other techies uh, to uh, learn technology, right? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, my work history is uh, basically influenced by database uh, uh, systems or database knowledge, let's say. So I worked for, for instance, for Actian, or so relational database systems or columnar database systems, or uh, was working for a small craft database startup in the in meantime, then for Couchbase, and uh, now I'm working very closely with Redis Labs. So yeah, uh, just in case that I mention Redis from time to time or in today's <laughs> podcast, uh, please forgive me because I really, really like the technology, right? So uh, now, now um, what we nearly forgot to mention is actually uh, what today's podcast is about, right? And uh, the uh, name of the episode is Fast Change, how architecting a web application has changed in the last 10 years, right? So we will have uh, the opportunity to talk a little bit about database uh, systems in this architecture as well, but this is not the main focus, I'd say, right? The main focus is the architecture of the application itself. And uh, Thomas will, will uh, mainly talk about this. I'm uh, more taking the role of a moderator, uh, let's say. In, in this sense. Um, so let's get started. Uh, Thomas, uh, why don't we start with an application example? So maybe uh, comparing how it looked like in the past versus how it looks like uh, today. Um, do you have any idea for an application which could be discussed? Yeah, you could start. It, it's not very original, but you could look at a standard to-do application, like a standard web application that you have uh, 
you, that you find in many examples throughout the web. So to-do application would allow you to create to-do items, to delete them, uh, to tick them off. Uh, that's the usual requirements for it. You want it to be accessible via the web and you want your tasks to be behind the login. You just want to see your own task, obviously, and nobody else's tasks and the other way around. Other people shouldn't see your tasks and all of that. Um, the hosting costs should be as low as possible. That's another requirement that you get because nobody likes to pay more than they need to. Should be fully secure, of course, as I said, behind the login. Uh, performance should be good because you start with just a few people, but if you're very successful, you scale up to millions, ideally. Uh, good performance, what else? Uh, so yeah, as I say, no scaling limits. Yeah, there should be no architectural decisions that stop you from scaling up as you move forward. Yeah, we have no tolerance for not being scalable. Right? Absolutely or none. Just, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, uh, just to contribute a little bit to the crumpy part of our podcast. Yes, right? <laughs> no tolerance. <laughs> uh, okay, just kidding. Okay, um, so how would you have our architecture of such an application um, in the pre-cloud era, let's say, right? So before our stuff needed to be uh, scalable, before we had uh, tons of infrastructure. Uh, actually, stuff always needed to be scalable, right? But the architecture just didn't allow it maybe the same way. Um, and we had maybe our more infrastructure limitations. But anyway, right? So how, how, would we, how would we have architected something like that in the past, Thomas? Yeah, that's actually a good point. So in the olden days, scaling would be done by just chugging the software at a bigger server. You know, there wasn't much thought about, you know, how can you distribute it over multiple smaller servers, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So typically in the olden days, what you would do is a data store. The first thought is you go to SQL. You have an SQL database, that's step one. And then on top of that, you put some web technology. Remember the requirements were for a web application. So you would use something like ASP, maybe classic ASP in the 90s or later on ASP web forms or ASP MVC, like a server-side web technology that would just deliver the pages down to the client. Yeah, deliver the HTML and, and so on. Uh, would deliver that down and that is it right yeah. so you start with a monolith you know let's let's not get into that discussion yet monolith versus microservices so you start out with a monolith with an uh, sql database database underneath it that's okay. the classic so, approach so the, the typical uh, three-tier uh, let's say maybe already so you have our you have our backend service maybe already, right? Or maybe a front end. Or, mm. Well, actually, there's even not a. There's, it's not even really well decoupled yet, right? I, I guess it is, right? There is is some model view controller in place, but maybe uh, you didn't decouple the uh, the uh, the tiers are uh, as nicely yet. But uh, let's say, yeah. or at least in the yeah. beginning two thousand or something like that, right? I, I don't have the exact. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> time i uh it's uh maybe 2005 whatever i i was used to have an application which has a persistence layer uh, which had a persistence layer 
are some kind of or service, maybe soap or whatever, right? And then yeah, exactly. are the, the presentation layer, right? Um, so, but um, it was more or less or uh, one one stack, right? So basically, yeah. the service and was typically kind of one you thing, would divide right? that in in code rather than an actually an actual deployment artifacts, right? So there was a folder in your code for the business logic and a folder for the front end, right? Yeah, exactly. I have also to repeat, or maybe you mentioned it. I think you mentioned it, right? That yeah, are, so. you, you're doing mainly our .NET or and or C sharp stuff, right? Which is the reason why you're talking more about ASP and stuff like this, right? Whereby myself, I I did more Java in the in the past, which means that uh, I would have maybe talked about uh, Java server pages or JSPs or some MVC frameworks like or whatever right uh, from the good old days but uh, yeah just to make it a little bit more uh, wider for the audience right if they are not dotnet guys let's see right I've given up on converting you to C sharp it's just I actually happen. actually <laughs> I did a bit of C sharp development for about one year right uh, when I worked for this uh, craft database startup oh, they yeah, remember they competed for a while with Neo4j, so Neo4j being in Java, and they tried to do something very similar uh, in, in .NET, right? And uh, uh, yeah, so what I did is I implemented more backend stuff or low-level stuff. Uh, even this was uh, uh, looking at it now, or maybe not the best idea, but uh, the attempt was to implement a storage engine <laughs> in, in uh, C-sharp, right? Uh, by sometimes using some native stuff or, or breaking out to, to C, or, right? But uh, yeah, so there is some C-sharp uh, knowledge on my side. But uh, anyway, for the normal applications, or I, I personally saw more Java or, or within my career for enterprise applications. But this might be just because I work with customers that were more, uh, let's say, uh, yeah, Linux shops. Uh, and. Uh, on the operating system side and uh, Java shops shops for the for the enterprise applications, whereby uh, in your case you might have worked more with companies that are uh, Microsoft shops, right? So meaning uh, uh, Microsoft Windows yeah. Server and so on, right? Yeah, it just makes sense once once you've started out with the Microsoft stuff and you have the experience on your CV, you just stay with it because it's easier to find jobs in that direction or consultancy consultancy gigs for that matter. Yeah, makes sense. <clears throat> okay, fine. So now we have a have a kind of understanding how it looked like in the past. Or the next question would be, um, how. How did it change, right? How does it look today? Um, yeah. So, if you would describe a modern application architecture, or uh, how would you describe it? So, so many things have changed, actually. Uh, many things. So, it's rather than looking at one thing in in isolation, it's you have to take it apart and look at the a separate components of the application. So, for instance, one thing that you would think of is rather than delivering the pages down from the server, as you used to, um, just use a single page application instead, something like Angular, right? So, you know, there are other technologies available, but my go-to is Angular, right? Why Angular? Because it's more efficient. Or, well, why a single page application? Because it's more efficient. You download the application. 
download yeah download it i think it's fair to say you download it into your browser and it runs there and then the communication is much slimmer because all you do is you push data up and down between the server and your single page application right rather than always downloading pages and downloading javascript and downloading css all the time all you do is push up and down the the, the deltas okay fine so you have a single page application for these reasons it's just a more slim communication between the application and the server that's that's one step okay there's one more thing to look at when would you not use a single page application and the answer to that is you would not use a single page application if google needs to crawl you right for an application that just delivers out content like a news website, something that needs to be crawlable, it's better to deliver the, the rendered page down rather than a single page application. Google's gotten much better at scanning single page applications, but it's still a safer bet. And it also makes more sense for a news website, right? You go it, you, you view the content and then you go away. It's not a prolonged interaction. Right. So a single page application you would use if you have you generally say forms over data. Yeah. So if there's an ongoing interaction and I think for our requirements, that is the case. So step one, sort of the first refactoring from our original architecture would be using SBA. Right. So an SBA single page this? application. Sorry, uh, SPH. Yeah, sorry, uh, SPA. Sorry, SPA. Yeah. Uh, okay, fine. Uh, That's yeah. step one. Okay, so step two, as I said, a single page application talks a much more reduced way with the server, which means the server needs some application that receives the data and sends data down to the SBA, which is done via an API. So that is that is another step you need on the server. You need some sort of API because that is what the single page application talks to. Right. So this is the second change. Right. Step one, single page application. Step two, you need an API. Right. So far, so simple. The next step, security. Right. So what would you have done in, in the classic case? You would have written a login form, right, where the user logs in, provides the password, and then the password gets stored in SQL in ideally in some sort of hashed form, right? This yeah. is what we yeah. did back in the day. So today it's it's almost it's it's provocative, but I would almost say if you are coding a login form, you're doing it wrong, right? So what you would use this. Uh, today is an external identity provider, right? There are many advantages to doing this. First, first of all, is legal compliance, right? So an, an external identity provider is is audited for security, and and things like that. And also, it takes compliance burden away from you. Yeah. So if you're not storing user data, first name, last name, or whatever, if you keep all that data in your external identity provider, you don't need to be audited for GDPR and that sort of thing. Okay. So I'm not a lawyer, don't quote me on this, but this is the <laughs> way to, to <laughs> this is the way to, to offload uh, compliance problems. The same way if you take payments, right? 
in you know a, a little example doesn't take payments but just to expand on this a little in the olden days you would have written a page that takes your credit card details and then talks to some sort of credit processing api and then maybe you store those credit card details into your sql which means you need to be audited for pcie PCIe, PCI compliance, PCE yeah, compliance. PCI, yeah. PCI, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. PCI, PCI compliance. Right. Exactly. But if you use a third-party vendor, uh, PayPal or Stripe or whatever, you, you let them handle that. So all you do is to establish a trust with them, and then if PayPal tells you yes, this person has paid that amount of money, you trust that, and then your website provides whatever the service. Right, so it's the same idea with identity providers. It's something you offload, right? So yeah, I I can see this, right? But I I guess there there are also cases where you have inter have an interest to keep some of the data, right? Absolutely. So also, user specific data for yes. analytical purposes, for improving your service or whatever, right? Exactly. Yeah, compliance could go the other way. It could say that you have to store all your user data sort of internally, maybe even on premise rather than in the cloud, you know? So you always have to look at your use case. But our specific little example to to-do application, I would say, let's use an external identity provider and just, you know, don't don't have to have a headache because the external identity provider also provides, it, it, it doesn't only provide login flows, it also provides sign up, you know, register flows, maybe multi-factor authentication, all that stuff you don't have to worry about. You just ask the identity provider, is this Thomas? And he says, yes, and then you're happy, right? How it actually I, works I, I on the cover. To, I, yeah. I have to admit that I actually never really used such an identity provider or within my applications. I'm not entirely sure what I did most of the times is writing a login form by myself, but then or leaving the authentication maybe to something external, right? Or mm. let it be an LDAP or let it be uh, or the Google authentication or whatever, right? Which is not exactly what you're talking about, right? Because um, um, it, I, I'm also I'm also interested in when you say uh, you don't need to write login form. Isn't the identity provider just providing you a ah. service uh, whereby you still need to integrate your form with the with the yeah. service uh, you can uh, do of it this that provider? Way. Yeah, yeah, you can do it that way. You can totally have a login form that captures your password and then sends that password to some sort of external identity API. That's totally possible, but. Why, why do it at all like that? Why not redirect to your identity provider and your identity provider provides login forms already out of the box. So you redirect there, your user logs in and the identity provider redirects back to your application with some sort of token typically, and they call it an identity token and yeah. or an access token. And, and that is all you need to do then sure, your application needs to validate that token, which is exactly. quite easy. There are libraries where you can do this, you know, where you can just say, uh, hey, external identity provider, is this token valid? And he says, yeah, sure, it's valid. And then you say, okay, so it's Thomas, happy days. And you don't need to, to, to write a, a login form or a register form or anything at all. You just have this landing point where the identity provider redirects you with a token 
and then you're done and then you're locked in it's all you need to do yeah makes sense i mean i can see that maybe in in order to not or or yeah in order to not rely on the service only right um that you combine this or this token which you retrieve from the identity provider with or kind of a token cache on your side right where you where you basically have some or some logic to validate it or kind i'm not sure of. so the way this works is that the identity identity provider sorry <laughs> the identity provider uh, publishes its own public keys yeah. right and your application can download these public keys and then use the public keys to validate the token right because the token okay, comes with sure. a signature that has been created with a private key of the identity provider and Makes you can sense. use the public key to verify that signature and that is all you need to do. You don't actually need to talk to the identity provider to verify it. You just need to cache these public keys. Exactly. So, so basically, that's what I mean, right? What I mean are you need to have a kind of cache on on side of the yes. application, uh, which maybe raises another need for a database system, right? Um, which uh. are uh, <laughs> which now brings us to the next question. Or um, so, or how did the database system change? I mean, we talked a lot right. about our, our our SQL databases or and so on, right? Uh, what's the database of your choice? I mean, I know the answer actually, right? Knowing that you're a big <laughs> Azure fanboy, I, I know the answer. But <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> anyway, let me let me ask it anyway for completeness reasons, right? Okay. So big surprise, it's Cosmos DB, obviously. So uh, as as an Azure fanboy, this is the global scale Azure no SQL um, document database that you that you would use for that the the big advantage and i know you're gonna talk about this because this is your specialist subject the big advantage is there are no scaling limits as i say i won't elaborate on this but i'm just saying there are no scaling limits it has uh, read replicas global read replicas it has multi-master writes right so you can write in the usa you can write in europe and it and it sorts out the, the differences, right? It has, um, how do you call it, consistency levels, right? So the, the default one is, I think, strong session consistency, where the data you write in a session and you read in a session is consistent, where you could also say, uh, set it to eventual consistency, where it is possible that you write data, but if you read it back and you hit another node of the cluster, you don't get that same data back because it's not replicated yet, right? Not yet, so yeah, that's one thing. Um, yes, so that would, would be that. So you would use Cosmos DB or, or Redis, as I'm sure you say in a second. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I have to say, um, I have to say, first of all, right, um, there is no such thing as not having scalability limits, or uh, it's just a question okay, or yeah, true. how how far you go, right? Uh, but uh, let's say modern NoSQL databases or this database systems or or can drive this uh, to a point uh, where it is hard for the average application to actually see any scalability limits, let's say, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, uh, I will talk about this uh, maybe in a minute. So uh, just go ahead. Yeah. Sure. And that is mostly, well, let me think, what else need to change? So you need a document DB 
in the background, ideally for this one. Uh, you need an API, you need a single page application. I mean, there is more, but it's more Azure specific. So if you think about it, all right, I should elaborate. So how does the single page application talk to Cosmos DB, right? The answer is Cosmos DB is a cluster already. So why not let the single page application talk to the Cosmos DB cluster directly, right? So, and, and, and this is the, the approach. You could have an API in the middle, right? That, that proxies the data between the two, but, but why? Your API is an additional bottleneck. Why have that? Right, so the recommended approach these days. Aha, really, ah. really, really. Yes, I mean, really, I, I, tend, really. I tend to disagree, but it's okay, fine. Okay, uh, like, go ahead. Well, well, let me just explain, and maybe your concerns are alleviated, right? Yeah. So the way this works is you go to Cosmos DB and say, um, well, well, okay, so you have master keys that allow you to talk with the entire data, the entire Cosmos DB. Obviously, you wouldn't do that with your single page application because that would allow every user to access everybody else's data, right? That's not secure. So what yeah. you do, you can ask Cosmos DB to generate a resource token. The resource token allows to access the database, but with limited, uh, with limited scope. Right, so a resource token might only allow you to act, to access your own data, right? If if you've if you've structured your Cosmos database correctly, then this is possible. So, thinking about this, all you need to do is for your API to do a token exchange. What's called a token exchange, right? So remember, you already have your token from your identity provider. Right, And then your single page application says, hey, API, I would like to access some data. And the API says, okay. And then it verifies your token, the one you got from the identity provider, right? It, it does that in the same way, you know, it does a public key thing. Yeah. And, and then says, okay, this is Thomas. So Thomas should be able to access Thomas's data, the data that belongs to Thomas. And then it says to Cosmos DB, please generate a resource token that allows Thomas to access Thomas data. And then the API returns that token down to the single page application. And then the single page application can use that token to talk to Cosmos DB directly. Right, that's it. Is that, is that secure enough, you would think? I can't yeah, see any flaw so, in this. So, so, sounds, uh, sounds like it, right? Our, the the question I mean, I mean fine the the single page application is kind of scaled by itself right so because it you have does. multiple yeah, it totally does. Uh, you you have multiple instances running and so on um, anyway I I mean if I would think about it I would think about it more in a context of a, a microservices architecture right and um, let's say in a microservices architecture um, you might have multiple data stores let it be Cosmos DB let it be Redis right <laughs> maybe I can talk a bit about Redis. 
this <laughs> sure. in yeah. a second. Sessions but uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, exactly. But uh, so let's uh, let's say um, what you have is you have a bunch of services, and those services, right, uh, provide domain-specific functionality. Let's say, right, and uh, uh, so usually they are they are not just data services. They actually do stuff. They have business logic, right, and uh, your application. Are, is or maybe needing to access multiple of those services or your single page mm -hmm. application. I think actually Angular has even this concept of a service which are wraps the access yes. to 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 an API or in this sense, right? It's and just good um, modular architecture, yeah. Ah, exactly, and in order to aggregate um, maybe or the the view of the application to those or several APIs, you could leverage an API gateway, right? Uh, in order to have a, a single or endpoint, if you want so, right? It's actually not a single endpoint, but anyway. Our, so so meaning, but behind the scenes, there are multiple services, and now um, each service, right, um, is is using the data store of choice uh, because one service might have uh, scalability requirements high scalability requirements and uh, as as good cosmos db might be right it uh, it's actually a polyglot uh, database system by uh, how it is designed right you can do cassandra you can uh, mm -hmm. uh, you can use the cassandra api you can um, use the MongoDB Mongo api <laughs> whatever right but uh, let's say um, I'm not a Cosmos DB expert. The The problem is that uh, as soon as you decide for a specific data model, typically, right? So let it be document, let it be key value and so on. There, there, are, there are downside or pros and cons, let's say, right? Uh, for instance, if you have a key value store, a key value store is uh, by definition very scalable because the way how you access the data is mostly via the primary key, which means that um, the only thing you need to do are to to uh, yeah, spread your data is to apply um, a hash function on the key, right? And then our, this might give you a slot number and the slot is mapped to a specific node or easy to distribute, right? Oh, of one. Uh, exactly, o of, one. O of one, o of one. So now um, this is different if you have a document database uh, already a bit. Um, there's a, it's already a bit more, uh, there are already a bit more scalability limitations are there because now you need to think about um, how to index and retrieve the data, right? So mm. some database systems then need to make a, or you need to make the choice with your database system. And some give you the opportunity um, to, if you would like to have uh, a distributed index or uh, an index which is sitting on one machine, right? A global index or whatever it's called then, um, in order to to basically avoid scatter and gather during read time, right? By not being as scalable during write time, whereby if you would have a distributed index, you would be more write optimized, but less read optimized, right? And uh, alone the fact that we talk about this means that there are some implications regarding scalability, right? Uh, beyond yeah. what you have with the key value store, because there you just use a key and you get a value back, right? Um, yeah, and uh, it goes further. If you would use a graph uh, API, well, you usually need to have, uh, um, yeah, you work with graphs, right? So the underlying database kind of uh, represents this graph in, in some way. And uh, it's actually not that easy to shard graphs or to distribute graphs because uh, um, 
there there is this notion of strong interconnectivity versus weak interconnectivity let's say right so something oh, which is okay. strongly interconnected needs to be together right in order to be effectively traversed versus uh, uh, something which isn't belonging together uh, has only a few edges going out to something else, right? So, which means that something which belongs together, which is highly interconnected, should be in one shard, right? And all the other stuff, which is weakly connected, let's say, is uh, in, a, in another shard, right? So the sharding is not as easy as just distributing the data equally, right? So, and again, you can see uh, different kinds of data models or database systems, NoSQL database system types, let's say, have uh, have uh, different pros and cons, right? And uh, now mm. uh, maybe it's the idea to say, hey, my single page application just uses Cosmos DB and that's it. And for our to-do example, maybe this is good enough, right? But if you are really care about uh, the best outcome, right? Um, and your application is conducted of multiple, let's say microservices, then what you should do is you should use what is called polyglot persistence by deciding for the right database system or persistent store for the right job. So meaning if you have a session store service, then just use a key value store, right? If you have a user profile store, maybe a document database, right? Because you already need to find users by secondary attributes and so on, right? If you have something like our uh, a network analyzer service, right? Uh, doing some optimizations or whatever, right? Finding the optimal flow or shortest path or whatever, right? Um, or a social network service <laughs> where you need to identify the friend of the friend of the friend, then maybe go with a graph database, right? Mm, but it's uh, it's from my point of view a little bit too, too simplified to say, okay, hey, the application can just use this one NoSQL database system. Or, and in reality, such an application might actually leverage, I mean, the to-do application not, right? So for your example, it may, makes totally sense. But for an actual enterprise application, or which leverages, leverages the microservice approach, um, this might not work out, right? Because uh, it it then basically implies scaling limitations because you're not using uh, the the right data store based on the requirements of the of the service which is used by the application, right? Mm. Yeah, that's true. You always need to re-examine your requirements when the requirements change. Uh, re-examine your architecture. Absolutely. I think, as you say, for this to-do example, for the simple thing, it it might be good enough and it probably might be the right architecture as well. You know, uh, no, as, you, as you know, uh, no SQL databases have this concept of a partition key. I think it's called differently. So Cosmos DB calls it a partition key, right? Mm -hmm. And if you imagine this to-do application, the data doesn't, the data of different users doesn't interact in any way, right? You, you just have your own to-do items sort of initially, right? So if you specify your partition key to be the user ID, yeah, yeah, then, then you're fine. And it's also something you need to do for these resource tokens that for, I for this earlier. For this purpose, you are, right? But it doesn't mean that, uh, let's say, the uh, if you specify a partition key as your user ID, it doesn't mean that uh, uh, the shard which is hit is only containing this user. It's just meaning that it's mapped to this shard, let's say, right? Yeah, yeah whereby, no, absolutely. Whereby other data might be mapped to this shard uh, as well, uh, kind of, right? Uh, I, again, I'm not a Cosmos DB uh, or expert, but uh, usually this is the case. And uh, 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's maybe interesting. Um, I talked a little bit about polyglot per persistence, right? Um, there's also this notion of polyglot database systems and uh, Cosmos DB is actually one of them. And uh, again, they, they have a variety of uh, APIs they provide and so on. Uh, another one which you could categorize as such and which is not widely known, so maybe... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I gave a hint regarding this at the beginning, right, is is in a sense Redis. I mean, Redis is uh, in the first step uh, often used as a as a pure key value store, right? Mm. Uh, but uh, in the next step, uh, it's actually more um, because uh, Redis is dealing with data structures. So it's a data structure store because you, you basically have, uh, the value can have a different structure. And it's actually quite cool for developers. So... I guess the main audience here is developers, so they might appreciate this. Um, so the structures you're having on side of Redis, so on the server side from the point of view of the database system, right? Um, so on side of the database system is, is actually mimicking, in a sense, the structures you're using as developer, right? So as developer, you're used to use or something like dictionaries. I think this is how it's called in .NET, right? <laughs> or yes, hash maps right. in Java or uh, lists uh, or, yeah, uh, sets and so on, right? So those are typical structures you're leveraging for development purposes in order to deal with, uh, with data within your application, right? Um, so not persistent data, but data which you process within the application. Redis is is cool because it actually provides you the same structures on side of the database system. So what you do is you you append a value to a list, um, you or add a add a value to a dictionary, which is called the hash there, right? Or uh, there are other structures as well, right? Sets, sorted sets, and so on, right? This this alone is uh, is really powerful. It doesn't make it to to a polyglot database system yet, but the fact that you can extend it with additional modules, um, so by turning it, it into a native uh, graph database system, for instance, or a native uh, time series database system. So the idea is that uh, the Redis API is used, but the module actually brings its own data structures, right? And those data structures are natively implemented. So it's not the case like with other NoSQL systems that are adding graph functionality that the underlying um, data structure is still basically the old structure and there's just an API on top of it. Uh, if you use Redis graph as a module on top of Redis, uh, there's actually uh, an implementation of a graph database uh, system, which is accessed via the Redis API, right? By also uh, supporting the cipher querying, just as an example, right? Um, it's, it's just interesting to see, right? How this fits together in the microservices architecture, because now you could uh, leverage, uh, uh, let's say maybe the same database system. And this is maybe also a point for for Cosmos DB for different services, right? Uh, if they implement uh, uh, the, this stuff natively, right? Uh, meaning uh, you could say, okay, one of my services uh, is needing um, a graph database system, so let's go with the graph module in our case, right? Mm. Case of Redis or um, one of my other services is needing uh, a document uh, a database system, so we might combine something like uh, Redis JSON with Redis Search, right? Full text search plus uh, JSON uh, documents and so on, right? But uh, I don't want to stress this point too much, uh, just because we talk <laughs> we talked a bit about database systems, right? And this is uh, part of the architecture stack, let's say. Right? Yeah, makes sense. It's interesting because Reddit is really mostly known for being a cache. Redis, yeah, Redis. It would be sort of my first choice, you know, where do I put session 
data, for instance, or any cache. You know, I, I don't think many people know about this added functionality that you just yeah. described. Or, I'm, I'm or, not sure about it, but yeah, you might be right. So I guess something like caching session store or something where you need to have fast access or yeah. millions of operations, sub-millisecond latency. Yeah, no, are typically I'm, I'm not cases. saying it's right. I'm just saying this is what it tends to be known for yeah, yeah, in yeah. my sure, experience. Sure. You know, yeah, sure. when, when somebody I work for mentions Redis, oh yeah, that's a cache, right? And that's mostly all yeah. they know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I, I mean, uh, you're right. Uh, that's the case. But uh, uh, again, it, it's more than that, right? Mm. Uh, and someone who is uh, just a little bit, a little hint from my point of view, I, I know I, I don't want to do too much marketing, blah, blah, right? <laughs> that's not about uh, marketing Redis. But someone who is not exploring additional features of Redis and let it be just something like streams or publish, subscribe, which, which are built-in features or... Uh, maybe some additional modules or is giving a chance away to maybe uh, use it, uh, use the full potential of it, right? Uh, That's fair. Way. Because it's, 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 more than, it's more than memcached, right? It's not another memcached. Uh, the original idea, and this is how the name came, right? It's a remote dictionary service <laughs> or server, uh, was actually to, to provide developers a way to use data structures or to use RAM remotely, let's say, right? To, to have a state somewhere remotely. And it's in a memory database system, but um, indeed you can also persist the data. So there are, you can leverage AOF files, so AOFs, uh, append-only files, or you can okay. snapshot the data to disk and so on, right? Um, so if you, so to the listeners, if they didn't explore this yet, maybe take a look, right? It's actually quite good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for this very important message from our sponsors. Uh, what do you mean sponsors? There is no sponsor, right? <laughs> there. Yeah, I wish there were one, but there you go. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Maybe in the yeah. future, right? Maybe after yeah. this. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, anyway. Now I, I like Redis. I like NoSQL databases in general, right? I, I mean, I worked for, for a bunch of vendors in the past, and uh, um, I, I really think that uh, for... A lot of use cases, um, relation database systems are no longer needed and uh, they have more more limitations than they bring to the table. But indeed, are, are, I need to be fair, right? There are use cases and consistency is a little bit uh, a tough thing. You mentioned, oh yeah, they yeah. provide strong consistency and so on. Um, let's say you always have to do trade-offs, right? So yeah. if you want to have something which is scalable and or uh, which is also highly available or uh, right available from the point of the view of the application, you you have to give up um, consistency, right? I mean, consist strong consistency yes. has a performance impact, right? Uh, because uh, you then end up with synchronous. Uh, uh, replication um, with a new database system and uh, yeah regarding the uh, availability versus consistency there is this uh, cap theorem right um, way which is saying that you can either have uh, from the point of view of the application let's say or something which behaves consistently right uh, so you always get the same data at the same point of time from everyone who is requesting it, right? Um, or uh, it is always available. Right? I, I could explain this very simply, but uh, it's maybe uh, out of the scope of this podcast, right? But uh, it may be a topic for the next one, right? Uh, yeah. Discussing consistency and the cap theorem, because there is a lot of misinterpretation uh, in general.
general rounded, right? Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, fine. So it's true. Yeah. yeah, but it's just physics, isn't it? If you want to replicate something from A to B, it yeah. just takes a while, and it's then up to you if you want to wait for that or not. Uh, exactly. Right. It takes That's what a while. It boils down to. Right, and, and sometimes, and sometimes you don't want to wait this way, and then that's, you end that's up the with eventual, eventual consistency, right? Or actually, eventual consistency is one thing. There, there's tons. There are tons of our uh, consistency models, right? So, um, yes. from something like our eventual consistency, which is more or less uh, a very weak one, up to strong consistency, mm -hmm. but. Uh, you can have uh, order consistency and stuff like this, right? Um, yeah. Sequential consistency. Uh, uh, there's uh, stuff in between, let's say, right? It's, uh, yeah. Uh, it's As I say, Cosmos DB has five levels. Okay, fine. I, I mean, um, maybe I talked too much about it. No, that's okay. <laughs> sorry. sorry about, uh, sorry about okay. this. Um, no, no. It's, uh, it's maybe, I, I mean, I know you're an Azure fanboy, right? And uh, we, <laughs> we mentioned this already a bit, uh, and I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not shy to mention it again and again, right? <laughs> Just because I, at least I find it funny, right? Uh, to be fair, I have to mention that uh, I prefer GCP, right, uh, as my cloud. Ugh, hey. Why? <laughs> To, to be, I, I mean, it, this is just personal opinion, right? And uh, um, it's, uh, I don't mean this too negative, but I, <clears throat> but I personally think that our, our, the, the service offering is a little bit better, well structured and the way how to use this or uh, from the command line, for instance, is making more sense from my point of view, right? Mm. Azure it was something like a mind shift a bit for, for me. Uh, you have this additional concept of resource groups and stuff like this. At the end, it's all the same, right? But um, it is I, I, of, I have yeah. the feeling that Microsoft as often, right, kind of complicates things sometimes a bit more than they need to be, right? Uh, but uh, this is just my personal personal opinion, right? Um, so yeah, I have, just for completeness reasons, um, there's also AWS, yes. GCP, <laughs> Azure, others, right? So this is not an advertisement uh, session for uh, for Azure, but Thomas has, uh, uh, it's a most, most of his experience with uh, Microsoft Azure. And uh, so knowing that I, I am asking you, uh, let's take this uh, application, right? Uh, the example application, so let's take a step back. How would you implement this on top of Azure? I mean, we talked about uh, how the architecture looks in general, but how, how would it look like if you would do it exactly in Azure? You already mentioned Cosmos DB, so we know this, but uh, all the other stuff, I mean. Yeah, Cosmos DB, take. So let's start from the front again single page application. So what you can do in Azure and what I know you can also do in AWS. I don't know about GCP. And by the way, what I said earlier about GCP being uh, that, yeah, I, I'll take that back. You know, that judgment is not very educated. I've, I've not had much contact with GCP, so it might be a fine provider. As you say, other providers are available. I think even Oracle has a cloud now. Anyway, so you would host your single page application yeah. Just about Azure, personal preference, right? Uh, just so about as, personal as I, preference. As I said, it's personal preference. It's not nothing professional, right? So it's just it's computers a, in the cloud, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's just computers somewhere else, right? Somewhere <laughs> in, in the inverted commas cloud. <laughs> exactly. Right. So you would host your single page application directly out of Azure storage. So how, how does that make sense? So a single page application at the end of the day has no moving parts. 
there is no compute. All you need to do to host it is to have static file hosting, right? Because all the client does is download the HTML, download the JavaScript, all of the JavaScript. It might be megabytes, yeah, right? But on the server side, all you need to do is to host static files, right? And most cloud providers allow you to have a cheap static hosting. Specifically in Azure, you can configure your Azure storage to host a website, or I should say, to treat the files in that storage as a static website, right? So there's something you need to go in and configure this, right? So that is the single page application part hosted out of storage, very cheap, by the way, because again, there's not okay. much compute or so you don't need to have, compute. You don't need to have an application server, so nope. there's no Node.js uh, running nope, nothing. or whatever, it, right? Okay. No, it's just files. Your single page application compiles to a set of JavaScript and HTMLs, and you just, yeah, just, just host them statically. AWS can do this as well, as I said, and I'm sure Google Cloud Platform can do it also. Right, so that is that sorted. Host that thing out of Azure Storage. And what you then what you can do then to optimize it is put a CDN in front of it. What it also gives you, what a storage web page not necessarily gives you, not all of it is supported, is a custom domain and HTTPS, right? So a certificate on top of it, CDN obviously standing for Content Delivery Network, where your static content is distributed over a number of compute nodes worldwide, right? And then when a user goes to the to the to the domain that you've registered, as Azure routes you to the closest edge server where you can download your HTML and your JavaScript. All of that happens transparently. Okay, cool. Right. So CDN, but this is an optional step. Right. Moving on, the next thing, the external identity provider. There are many out there. There are quite a few out there. There is a noteworthy, I've worked with Auth0, very, very good, completely Node.js based. What you can do is even write a Node.js middleware where you can transform your identity tokens right, just with JavaScript, and you can put any additional attributes in there. Gorgeous, fantastic. All zero is a good one. There is Okta as well. But if we are in the world of Azure, I would just say use Azure Active Directory B2C. Okay, right. I know many people hear Active Directory and think, oh, that's the Microsoft on-premise stuff. Well, it is, but what I've done is they reused that name for their new cloud-based identity provider. It's still compatible with on-premise Active Directory to a point, but it's a completely new implementa implementation with new features, right? So Azure AD B2C, which means um, business to customer, Right. So there is a B2B version as well, which allows federated login, all that stuff. Right. But for our to do app, we're going to use B2C. Right. And that allows things like OpenID Connect, which is what I described earlier, where your single page application redirects to the login page of the identity provider. And then the identity provider redirects back. Right. That's okay. done 
via OpenID Connect. Interesting. So it's basically more than the old, as you said, right? Just to repeat it, it's more than the old uh, notion of uh, Active Directory. Because if I hear Active Directory, then I'm, I'm usually seeing something like, yeah, this is Microsoft's version of an end-up server yeah. plus, <laughs> plus some camera stuff or whatever, right? Uh, or single sign-on. I'm even not sure if they use Kerberos, but yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And with this B2C, uh, yeah, I, as I said, it's a separate thing from what most people associate with Active Directory. And this uh, Active Directory B2C in Azure gives you functionality like um, log in with Google, log in with Facebook, this, and, and log in with ME SAML 2.0 compatible external identity provider, right? So you can set up federations with external ones as well. Right, all the things you would expect. Cool. Right, so that's that. Identity provider, Cosmos DB, we already covered. And if you remember how I described the API, that the API should do a token exchange, exchange the ID token for the resource token from Cosmos DB, right? And a good thing to do here is to use the Azure API management proxy because that allows you to offload the um, verification of your ID token uh, in, into this proxy, right? You just use this as a proxy in front of your API. And by the time the request hits your API, you can already be sure it's authenticated and the ID token is valid, right? So that allows you to, to save more code. What you can also do with API management it, it doesn't apply to this token thing, but as you later expand your solution, you can do things like rate limiting or caching, right? It's just a configurable proxy in front of your API. And it's, well, we'll come on to that, but it's quite cheap to use, so why not do it? Right, um, right. So management proxy, the last moving part you have in there is you want to store your secrets. Right. Going back to the olden days, right, your server-side software, there was probably a connection string in the config file on how you connect to your SQL. I mean, it, it was even wrong back then to do this. <laughs> but, you know, let's let's not kid ourselves. We, we've done it like this back in the day, right? Connection string in the web config, which is safe. The config is on the server, not accessible, but it in, in a way, it can mean that it is saved in source control and you should never, ever save a secret to source control, right? So that's another thing. So what I'm coming on to, you need a secret store in the cloud as well. And I know all cloud providers have this. For Azure, it's called Azure Key Vault. And you put all the secrets in there that you right that you use for instance the api needs to connect to cosmos db right and if you don't want to set up an active directory integration but just use the cosmos db master key you would stick that master key into the azure key vault and then your your api connects to the key vault gets the key uses the key to talk to cosmos db right that's the thing now the yeah. next question you might have how do you stop users from accessing your API directly rather than going to the API authentication proxy, 
right? And the way to do this is as well with Azure Key Vaults, you put a, let's say a certificate in there and the API management proxy adds that certificate as a header to every call and your API just verifies that header, right? There, there yeah. is a, yeah, there is a cost saving options to, the, to this. You could use a certificate which costs money or you could just have a, a long secret in the key and then your proxy adds that long secret as a basic authentication header that you yeah. just verify in the API. And, yeah. and that way it costs you nothing. So basically the API needs some additional authentication which is known by yeah. the proxy at the end. Okay. That's um, the thing. Or, or you do some private networking, but that would mean sticking your API in some sort of private virtual machine in the cloud. And that's that's more hassle than it, than it's worth really. So you would use the API service, but then secure it like that, like I described. Makes sense. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I have to admit that I learned something today, which is great. Oh, uh, oh great. And, Not uh, a total and waste of time then. And, and, and <laughs> 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 at least one person was kind of educated. Uh, no, but, I was too. Uh, yeah. But I guess we, we have, uh, yeah, I, I mean, there are, uh, I would say modern architectures are, are there are multiple ways to do it right and uh, oh, having yeah. having it as described by you is is one way which is really are uh, cool I, I can see to use something like that for for the one or other project let's say oh, right great. um maybe not with azure let's see right <laughs> <laughs> but again just personal preferences right uh, this is only my personal opinion and uh, yeah um but uh I, I think what I what I currently prefer more if I or deploy applications or is uh, really to use this more microservice like approach. Um, yeah. So I don't want to hit this buzzword too much, but uh, if I if I think about uh, how how I've seen modern applications deployed uh, lately, it was most often like okay, hey, there are multiple services that are making my functionality of the application up. There is indeed a presentation layer or an application that be are, are written in Angular or whatever, which uh, which leverages the, those services and are, are all of this mm. stuff is then deployed within a Kubernetes cluster, let's say, right? Yes. Uh, including including the database systems, which is also a trend uh, to deploy even stateful stuff in, in Kubernetes. I'm I'm not going to talk about this uh, That's now, another right? podcast. <laughs> it's another podcast, right? Um, why, why I might think that this is not a good idea or why I might think that this this is a good idea. Who knows, right? I again, I'm not making a statement right now about it. But um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, my personal view was so far, right? Hey, modern architectures are looking more like a bunch of microservices. Microservices are having um, um, sophisticated ways to c communicate with each other, right? Um, so, for instance, asynchronously by uh, using something like um, yeah. Uh, a message broker or uh, mm -hmm. yeah, Kafka, Redis streams, whatever, right? And um, and then um, at the end, the application is uh, is accessing the services. The services are accessing the data. Um, each service is accessing the database of uh, which fits best. And then um, there might be an API gateway on top of it, right? Or to make the access yeah. or kind of exactly. or, or a little bit yeah abstract more abstract for the application and uh, uh, all of this stuff is deployed um, on demand in, in Kubernetes, right? 
Or so, hey, this is my deployment, uh, multiple yeah. services, application, and so on. But I can see that actually for something like the to-do application, uh, and this is our example, right? Simple to-do application. I can see that uh, the approach I, I would have chosen is much more expensive, right? Uh, <laughs> than, than your approach. KISS principle. Even, yeah, I, I, your approach is is very sounds also regarding the costs much cheaper than my approach, right? Whereby I would also have used some some built-in services within um, Kubernetes, right? So, for instance, for the uh, secrets management or whatever, right? Yeah, there are solutions out there, but um, yeah, um, maybe talking about costs. Or do you have an idea what the cost of your solution would be yeah. approximately i mean it sounds to be cheap right because we we have just need a bit of storage storage is cheap it is, uh, the cdn yeah. is uh, kind of uh, or addressing some scalability aspect of delivering this uh, this html content let's say right and then mm -hmm. there there's the database uh, system which costs some money maybe this is the uh, the most expensive part in this in this case, right? Um, not sure. Uh, maybe you can talk a bit about it. Sure. So I will in a second. But before I do, can I just go quickly off script and say, since you mentioned Service Fabric, I had a a discussion with a guy called Philip Milne, who was part of the original team that wrote Java. Don't ask me how I got to know him. Um, about the pros and cons of microservices. And at the end, we found out, well, as the, the answer is always, it depends, like with all things Indeed. that we do, right? And we got to a point where we said, really, the architecture of the application, in a way, has to reflect the architecture of the team. You know what I mean? So yeah so so we got to a definition to say the number of microservices in a microservice architecture is equal to the number of things you want or need to look at in separation right or the things you could assign to separate teams that have some sort of interaction going on right yeah so so almost so what follows from that if you just have a simple team a monolith a monolith is a good place to start and I know this is controversial, but you can always refactor, right? And speaking of microservices, I looked at something that many people in the Microsoft space would know, but I just found out about this. There's a thing called Service Fabric, which is a microservices cluster. So it allows you to host stateless and stateful uh, microservices. microservices. And obviously, and, and, it allows you to scale. So the stateless ones, you can just easily scale up and down That's a slider or even traf sort of auto detection when it yeah. should scale. <laughs> and the stateful ones have some sort of Hadoop-like distributed system underneath them, right? Where every microservice is responsible for a shard of the data that is then replicated and so on and so forth. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, but Microservices is a uh, service fabric. Microsoft service fabric is a bit uncool now because it is a whole, it's an all or nothing. You need to code in C sharp and you deploy to this service fabric cluster and, and so on and so forth. Side note, the Azure cloud is written on top of service fabric, so it is reliable. Anyway, so Microsoft has recognized this and they're bringing a new thing out for microservices, which is called Dapper. You can use 
any language you like and the communication between the microservices is facilitated by a sort of a sidecar HTTP little mini API that runs in the same container as your service and facilitates the communication. Very interesting. Right. So just coming back to the script. Maybe, uh, maybe, or I mean, it's fine, right? So, or, so, <laughs> or, we we had some topics we wanted to talk about, and <clears throat> service fabric was not mentioned, but uh, that's fine. Uh, I mean, it's an open conversation at the end. Um, the uh, our, the question is a bit or how relevant service fabric is in times of Kubernetes, right? Because our, in in a sense, Kubernetes became the are one of the yeah. de facto standards, right? And uh, most of the cloud That's vendors uh, actually picked up Kubernetes uh, and uh, provide this as a service um, as well, right? Um, so mm. there are multiple Kubernetes distributions and or, for instance, Google is providing our uh, container service, right? Which uh, more or less yeah. looks like vanilla Kubernetes, uh, right? Yeah. I think what we're talking about is kind of on topic because we sort of said how architecture has changed for web applications. So, you know, um, yeah. yeah and, and Microsoft has recognized this. That's why a service fabric is kind of dying and this new thing, Dapper, is coming out. And Dapper just facilitates the communication. So you can totally deploy the Dapper set sidecar into your Kubernetes deployment, right? So it, it's like, uh, what's the other thing called? Towel or flannel, right? The DNS thing in Kubernetes. So it's a little bit like that. Yeah, makes sense. Right. Okay. Anywho, Good. we were talking maybe about we can, Maybe <laughs> we can, yeah, exactly. Maybe we can talk uh, dig deeper into this the next time. Or, or yeah, why poten not? Uh, potential, we already uh, uh, did throw a, a few topics around, right? Uh, we yeah. can pick from, uh, maybe uh, if we have listeners, because this is the first episode, right? Uh, if we will have li listeners, maybe they can leave some comments uh, which kind of topic they would like to have discussed oh, yeah. between you and me. Um, between uh, the grumpy old coders, right? And uh, <laughs> uh, not okay. grumpy enough. <laughs> Grump, not grumpy enough, right? Actually, I have I realized that we are not grumpy enough. Uh, I, I mean, we have to explain that we know each other for years, right? Uh, I think we met the Decades first time almost. At, at university and then worked for a while together and um, yeah so I, I know you can be more crumpy and uh, <laughs> and I know you can be yeah. more crumpy as yeah. well okay. <laughs> we have exactly. to dial up the crumpy yeah, yeah let's, let's be more crumpy and, okay fine two. Yeah, maybe bumpiness. maybe I'm getting really really crumpy when I hear about the cost but actually I don't think so but okay so what are the costs okay right so there are a lot of free tires, tiers, how do you say that? So there's a lot of freebies with Azure, right? So what you can do, for instance, for Cosmos DB, right? So every Azure subscri subscription, which is kind of equivalent to a login in Azure, like a root uh, in, in AWS, like a root login, has sort of a number of free requests request units, right? So request units for Cosmos DB is... Well, like like a size, like how much traffic you can put through it, right? And there is a number of free ones. And if you just have a dev deployment, these first 300, uh, first free 400 request units 
are perfectly adequate for testing. So you get your Cosmos DB for free. There are some pennies to pay per gigabyte storage, but that's not too much. It's it's the compute that gets you, you know, but that's free for dev deployment. Then the app service. App service is what you use to host your API, right? Uh, there's a free tire for this. Uh, yeah, totally free. You don't get an SLA, and that's true for all these things, right? They just provide it for free, but they don't guarantee you any uptime in return for it, which is fine for dev deployment. Right, so there's a free tire for that. The API management has something like the first, I don't know, I don't remember top of my head, first 100,000 calls to it are free. And then the next 10,000 cost a fraction of a penny, something like that. So the API management is free for all concerns, you know, for all purposes. Then there is the identity provider. I mentioned Active Directory B2C. For that, the first 50,000 users are free. So that again costs nothing for dev deployment. So what you end up with a dev deployment, and you, you're gonna ask me how I got those numbers, so, so, so I won't say it now, um, is uh, 77 pence. So I'm in the UK, so I'm talking pence in pounds. Uh, 77 pence per month. Yeah. Yeah, it's nearly, nearly, nearly zero euro, right? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Wait until after Brexit, then it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right, so that's that's it for dev deployment, 77p. And then you're going to ask, how about a real deployment? Yeah, the um, production uh, deployment. Yeah. yeah, the production deployment. So all the free tires go away because for, for a production deployment, you need to have service level agreements you need to have slas right you can't just have that free freebie stuff so for a hundred thousand users i calculated um 367 pounds and seven pence <laughs> so i made some assumptions so a hundred thousand users how much data would they have how many calls would they do to cosmos db right how often would they log in so that sort of thing but if you think about it, 100,000 users, uh, round about 400 pounds a month in hosting, that means you need to earn 0 0.4 pence per user to cover your hosting. And if you run a company where you don't earn 0 0.4 pence per customer, you're, you're kind of doing your business wrong almost, right? So that, that should, should be doable, I would have thought. Yeah. yeah, sounds sounds or like something which is even even something you could do for um, yeah personal reasons as a toy project or whatever, right? Uh, but again, right for a company indeed. Um, I I guess this is a fair statement. Right? Um, okay. How I mean actually, how did you calculate this stuff? I I mean I I don't want to go too deep into the details, but um, you said for instance or. Or Cosmos DB, uh, this amount of requests per day, per second, or yeah. what is the traffic you're assuming for those 100,000 active users? Yeah, so I made some assumptions. You know, how many to-do items would you have? How many interactions would it take you to create a to-do item? I won't go into too much details because, because it's kind of boring. It's your normal, how do you estimate stuff, right? And, and then you... There, 
Azure, you know, commercial time, Azure has a nice calculator where you can plug all that stuff in, right? So you can you can list out all the elements of your architecture. You can say, I have a Cosmos DB, I have an API management service, I have Active Directory, and so on and so forth. And then you plug all the numbers in, and then at the bottom, it just tells you your monthly cost. That's it. So for the example of Cosmos DB, as I, as I already said, you pay for the storage, obviously, something a few pence per gigabyte. And you pay for the what they call the request units, how many requests. So 400 request units means you can make up to 400 requests in a second. And a request is the retrieval of a one kilobyte document, right? Retrieval or save. Well, I, okay. I know the AWS DynamoDB has a very similar system. To, but they have actually read units and write units. So, you know, but but it works exactly the same. Yeah, and that's how, um, how you I mean, write other, those numbers. Other vendors are using more. Yes. <laughs> I mean, other vendors using a different, slightly different approach, right? Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't want to talk too much about this, but um, yeah, it's, it feels a little bit like in the old good days or with, uh, with Cosmos then, like uh, in the mainframe, we, we had to pay this or... Uh, MIPS, right? If you remember yeah. this, uh, right? So uh, you pay per per interaction um, uh, instead of uh, kind of uh, um, a kind of pre-calculated price. Okay, fine, but it's fair for especially for such small use cases, right? Where you where you kind of uh, can oversee how much traffic you you will have. Um, maybe a different story if you release a game or whatever, right? Uh, which hmm. where you can't predict, or where you can't predict how much traffic it will get uh, over the next time, and then or hopefully you thought carefully about how to make money with this game, right? <laughs> well, that's the thing, but you can kind of predict how much traffic per user. So usually that's that would be predictable because you know what your user per, does. Per user, yeah, per user, yeah. But uh, the problem is that sometimes you can't predict the number of users, right? Number so of users, yeah, exactly. Let's assume you you basically are, yeah release a, a mobile game, which is uh, or even a browser game or whatever, right? I guess today nowadays it's more uh, mobile games. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, <laughs> but we are old, right? So we we still know browser games, by the way, uh, or even normal ones, right? Not being played in the browser um yeah but let's let's assume you you do a mobile game and uh, uh, your mobile game expect or you expect uh, hey i will have something like uh, ten thousand users and maybe because you didn't think too much about how to make money out of your game um um, you you end up then with more hosting costs or than than expected. Yeah, this would be bad, right? You. So yeah, but I, I guess if you do something like that, you need to think upfront how to monetize it uh, in in a way, right? Via yeah. advertisement yeah. or maybe adding a, a cheap price per user in the in the app store or whatever. Right? Something like that, yeah. Or or if if you if you're on the world of web, limit your users. Something like that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I would say that uh, I think we are n nearly done, right? Uh, uh, what's next for you, or Thomas? I mean, is there is there something planned on your side, uh, or besides of, or yeah, dealing with the. Uh, 
typical corona uh, stuff. But this is something we, we have to explain, right? So uh, we are recording this podcast, or uh, maybe for, the, for people in the future, right? During the, the COVID-19 uh, crisis, uh, at least uh, yeah, the, the first wave is already over. We are looking, I'm not looking forward, we're expecting to have a second wave soon, right? Uh, but yeah. uh, the limitations are kind of uh, a little bit weakened down, or so we or we can actually or nearly live normal. But uh, yeah, a anyway, is, is there any is anything specific, Thomas, or for you, what you would like to, to do in the context of this, or is there any interesting project uh, where you will leverage uh, the stuff we talked about or uh, yeah whatever whatever yeah so everybody's talking about lockdown projects so I actually did a lockdown project where I wrote a calorie counter for that which uses that exact same technology that we described so that was fun um, also in lockdown I got certified as an Azure architect so pretty proud of that I'm also working on an AWS certification uh, so that's ongoing hopefully very soon um, yeah i took some time off my last contract ran out in march and now i'm looking sort of finding out what i want to do next and that's it ideally get back to consulting that'd be good and what about you well, i mean I'm nothing very special i'm <clears throat> actually too busy with my with my normal uh, uh yeah workload let's say right <laughs> so there regarding work that didn't didn't change a lot or or since the lockdown happened so i'm still doing or the stuff i'm doing or currently i'm uh yeah conducting a training around or uh, cloud or for for a bunch of consultants right and this will be over soon um oh, fun. so yeah this is quite funny um yeah let's see what my next project is i i don't know yet right but um yeah uh i think one thing which was uh, exceptional is this uh, podcast right because usually currently i don't find a lot of time for side projects unfortunately i would like to do much more side projects right uh for instance i i started to to dig deeper into kotlin as a programming language uh -huh. and or uh try to yeah do some academic exercises implementing some stuff right uh, maybe uh, yeah but uh i again i don't find too much time at the moment so recording this podcast actually gave me um yeah an opportunity to, to do a, a nice little side project right which i don't have and besides of that personally i'm currently moving uh, to a new house, which also stresses a bit, <laughs> combined with all the other stuff, right? But uh, yeah, um, I am. I'm pretty sure that our, um, we will talk about some of the the current projects or uh, future projects uh, during our next episode, whatever this is about, right? Yeah, sounds good. This was a lot of fun. Let's do it again. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, Again, we need to think what we do, and um, our listeners, whoever is listening to this, right? Uh, uh, maybe liking grumpy old uh, <laughs> developers <laughs> or coders uh, can can let us know our, which topic you would like to have covered. If there is no one mentioning or what he wants, uh, we will just find something for the next episode. Um, okay, but uh, yeah, then. Actually, the only thing that's left is to say thank you, right? Thank you, Thomas, uh, for explaining this architecture. Uh, thank you, 
for listening, all the others outside there, right? And uh, uh, maybe the next episode is about uh, um, exploring Kotlin a bit more uh, as soon as I find time to, to dig deeper by myself, right? But uh, yeah, let's see. Um, it's not yet written in stone, as mentioned before. So thank you very much um, and goodbye. Sounds great. Thank you. Bye.